Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, politics, and current events. Today's session is the third part of our ongoing history of World War II. Our speaker is Paul Kennedy, who is the J. Richardson Dilworth Professor of History at Yale. He has a new book out entitled Victory at Sea, Naval Power and the Transformation of the Global Order in World War II. This episode, part three, will focus on the fateful year 1943, when the war was won by the Allies. Paul will tell us why the U.S. decided to invade North Africa instead of Europe as a trial balloon, why North Africa was followed up with an invasion of Italy that subsequently knocked Mussolini out of the war, and we'll learn about the internal strife within the Allied alliance, the disputes between the armed services, and why the Allies ultimately won. Please join us each week on What Happens Next. Please subscribe to our weekly email list on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, to hear about our upcoming podcasts. Let's begin. I am here with Paul Kennedy, the Yale historian who is the author of a new book entitled Victory at Sea. We ended our previous discussion together on what happens next during the World War II Battle of Crete that ended in a German victory in May 1941. Immediately after Pearl Harbor, the Battle of the Atlantic was raging. U-boats were successfully torpedoing our merchant ships that were heading to resupply England. Let's begin with a review of the Anglo-American war strategy and why FDR and Churchill decided to prioritize defeating Germany first. So in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, after Churchill had come across to the White House, the Grand Alliance was facing three enemies, Nazi Germany, Mussolini's Italy, and Japan. You couldn't take all three of them on at once, certainly not in 1941 to 1942, so what is the batting order? You have to understand where the two great combatants on the Western Allied side are sitting. For the United States, a terrible attack upon Pearl Harbor, and there was a pressure from congressmen, from the public, from the U.S. Navy to make the Pacific campaign by far number one. For the British, they had just escaped invasion a year before. They were in the fight against Nazi Germany and his buddy Italy, and they wanted a European-centric war and the Pacific coming next. Thank heavens that by 1943, as I argue in this book, the U.S. productivity is such that it can have both, but it couldn't then. Now let's get to the three armed services of the United States. The U.S. Navy not only wants to be in the Pacific first because it feels so badly hurt by Pearl Harbor, but because in the Pacific, it's likely that Pacific commanders like Admiral Nimitz would have the main role. For the two other U.S. armed services, the Europe-first strategy was attractive. For the U.S. Army, it was attractive because these dinky little islands in the Pacific offer no chance of putting a million strong American soldiers in. The European campaign shows that and the U.S. Army would be the lead service. For the U.S. Air Forces under Hap Arnold is certainly intent upon building these enormous long-range four-engine strategic bombers to blast the enemy's economy, railway systems, productivity, and get victory in the war that way. It was hard to imagine anywhere in the Pacific where you could have air bases to put 2,000 B-17s and B-24s, whereas if the Air Force went to join the Royal Air Force Bomber Command, it could start the systematic 
attacks upon German industry. When you look at the techno-industrial capacities of the three Axis powers, Germany was the country which was most likely, Larry, to deal you a really severe blow if it developed some of its super weapons. But remember by 1941-42, there was even a great apprehension fueled by Einstein's urgent messages to Roosevelt that Germany might acquire the atomic bomb. So there were a lot of reasons why it was Germany first. The UK and France were allies against the Nazis. But after France surrenders in June 1940, the question arises, what should the French do about the French fleet? God forbid it ends up in the German hands. Ultimately, the British decide to sink the French fleet in the harbor at Mers el Kabir. What happened? So this awful decision of June 1940 to go ahead and give an ultimatum to the leaders of the French fleet in North Africa and the Mediterranean, that is all affected by the fear of what Adolf Hitler would do next. Remember, they had just taken over Poland in the east, and then in April of 1940, Norway, Denmark, Belgium, the Netherlands, as well as knocking out France. And everywhere they took over, they tried to grab the military assets of a defeated country to turn them against Great Britain. So it's not surprising that there was deep concern on the part of Churchill and the British Admiralty about what would Germans do if they got their hands on the great French battle fleet. Uh, because it was the fourth largest navy in the world in 1940, the French leadership was now uh, under Marshal Pétain, a German satellite, the possibility of this French fleet tilting in the direction of the Germans weighed heavy on Churchill's mind. We also have to remember that for many, many years, Churchill was regarded as the most Francophile of all of the senior British politicians. He had been Francophile in the First World War. He had wanted Britain and France to stand firm together in 1938-39 against Nazi Germany. The irony of Churchill ordering the British Admiralty to uh, reinforcing the British Admiralty with large warships from the home fleet and then ordering them into the Mediterranean to send a diplomatic political message to the French leadership and admirals in the great harbors of Mersel Kabir to say, look, you have one of three choices here. You can either join us in the fight against the Nazis, and please do, or you can sail across to French colonies in the West Indies and be demobilized, or you can sail to a neutral place like the United States and be demobilized. But if none of these are acceptable to you and you are continuing to keep your battleships, then our fear is so great that we are going to come in and attack you. So when they decline to accept the ultimatum, then on those fateful mornings in early July 1940, the reinforced Mediterranean fleet starts bombarding the French fleet, especially in the main base in North Africa, at a place called Mers el Kabir, inflicting extraordinarily heavy casualties on the Navy, which had been its allies, Larry, just two months earlier. Pretty tragic. Two years later, in November 1942, 
The U.S. and Britain invaded French North Africa, codenamed Operation Torch. Why did the U.S. choose to fight in North Africa? The head of the U.S. Army, George Marshall, opposed the invasion of North Africa. But Churchill and Roosevelt ultimately decided to go forward with Operation Torch. What happened? Here's my hypothesis. The, the U.S. Army strategy when it came to European operations was to think big. If the Americans were going to put a large number of big divisions on the western shores of France, it would just go bang, 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 kicking all the way through to Berlin, and the war would be over. This was a strategy of direct attack with big, big forces. The idea that there was going to be something outside the main invasion of France, a distraction, as Marshall sword, into North Africa was something that alarmed him. On the other hand, in 1942-43, uh, three things counted against Marshall's hopes of a more direct offensive against the Third Reich. The first is that the U.S. Army was not ready for the huge invasion which would need to come on the Normandy beaches. It better get some practice in. Secondly, the Battle of the Atlantic, as we've just discussed, was not yet won. How are you going to get a million or two million American GIs safely to the UK, to their bases there, and then get the supply to them. And the air control over Europe was not yet won. For all these reasons, knocking out Vichy France regime in North Africa, which was seen as like the fourth partner in the Axis alliance, and getting the springboard and releasing the Mediterranean shores to make them more secure for the routes to Malta, this all seemed a good idea. Also, of course, there was a political calculation of Mr. Roosevelt. He wanted to tell the American public by the midterm elections of 1942 that the U.S. was on the go, that the U.S. was taking steps forward, and North Africa was the way to go. How were the Americans and Brits able to invade North Africa with the U-boats running wild in the Atlantic? Operation Torches a major American and British landing on the shores of North Africa in November 1942. To make sure that this vast amphibious operation is going to be uninterrupted, the Allied navies have just enormous amount of protection in terms of surface warships from heavy battleships and heavy cruisers down to light cruiser squadrons, down to dozens and dozens of destroyers and frigates. The ships going across to North Africa, there are ships with like 15,000 American GIs in, moving out of Glasgow in Scotland, down into Gibraltar, and through into the Mediterranean on the northern shore of Algeria, on the Atlantic coastline of Morocco and Algeria. There's no major disaster to the troop convoys going to North Africa as there was to some of the commercial convoys going from New York and Newfoundland to the British Isles. In Dwight Eisenhower's book, Crusade of Europe, he mentions the importance of logistics to the success of the North African invasion. One fascinating detail is that the Americans landed locomotives at the Casablanca port and then sent the armed forces on rail directly from the port all the way to Tunisia, to attack Rommel's forces hundreds of miles away. Let's make a number of big points about Operation Torch. First of all, it is the first big amphibious operation of the Western Allies. 
So they have an awful lot to learn. There were many setbacks and many issues about newer technology and bit of better command and control over landing beaches. All of this was a learning experience. Wasn't it a good thing that you tried it out on the wavering, wobbly Vichy French rather than trying your first operation against tough German-held divisions on the shores of Western Europe? Amphibious operations, Larry, are the most difficult ones of all because you have to come across a sea, which is an unpredictable element. You have to get the timing right. It's not just needing command and control of the air. You have to get your logistics perfect. And in some cases, you may have to fight your way onto the shore. But you're advancing against French forces which laid down their arms because there was already talk of a neutral settlement, which is going to come in another few days. Torch is wonderfully successful. On the whole, it's over with by December. So in January, Larry, you get this historic meeting of President FDR and Winston Churchill meeting at Casablanca. And nothing could be more symbolic of the way the Allies are coming back. This is terribly important for Roosevelt. It's the first major European theater operation the U.S. has been able to undertake. And now as you go into 1943, the two Allied leaders and their advisors can be, you know, taking a stroll alongside the shore of Casablanca when they're not meeting in their intensive plans for the recovery of Europe itself. After Operation Torch, Churchill gives a very famous speech. He says, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning to the end but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. What does Churchill mean by that? So let's do a little play on that interesting, almost Shakespearean sentence, Larry. It is repeated by Churchill's great military advisor, Alan Brooke, in his diaries. He looks at the success of the North American landings and he says, while this is not the beginning of the end, in other words, there's a lot of fighting to go all the way to get to the Hitler bunker in two years' time, it's not the beginning of the end, but it's the end of a beginning. And the beginning, when you look at the six years of the European war, the beginning has indeed stretched from the phony war of 1939, the fall of France in 1940, the Atlantic in 1941, and then the beginnings of the Allied recovery. Now that the United States is in the war, the first successful steps in the advance towards Rome and Berlin. It is one of Churchill's biographers who says, Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it out to fight. Churchill's speeches are calibrated both to support the morale of his British nation and the entire British Empire to Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, but also with a message to the American listenership because he recognizes there's a battle for sympathies and the empathies of the British public, and he wants them to see the battle through English eyes if it's at all possible. My grandparents and my mom were Austrian Jews on the run, and in November 1942, my family was hiding in a farmhouse in a rural area outside of Marseille in Vichy, France. The French did not put up much of a fight in Operation Torch in North Africa, so the Nazis decided that they needed to send German troops to southern France to prevent an American invasion there. 
My grandfather, in his memoir, wrote that Churchill said it was the end of the beginning for the Allied war effort, but he felt that for our family, Operation Torch was probably the beginning of the end. My grandfather witnessed German soldiers goose-stepping into Marseille and knew they had to leave France immediately, even without the requisite French exit visa. He evacuated France within days, and just six weeks later, the French government led a roundup of all the Jews in Marseille during the middle of the night in January 1943, and those captured were subsequently sent to Auschwitz. My grandparents and my mother, who was a small child at the time, rushed to the French-Spanish border. They ended up climbing the Pyrenees at night with the help of the French resistance, the Maquis. Wow. At that time of the war, in January 1943, the French resistance was a very small effort, just a handful of men and women helping mostly crash British Air Force pilots cross into Spain to get back to England to rejoin the fight. Can you explain the importance of resistant movements to the Allied success in the war? Yes. The British Special Operations Executive, SOE, reached out to a smallish number of French who wished to fight on a home country. British at the same time are reaching out as a resistance in occupied Norway, in uh, the Netherlands, and in Crete and Greece. Because there you have fighting men, and there you might have a better chance of developing some resistance. The early stages of the French resistance, there might be a lot of people in France who dislike the Germans, but they're terrified that the Germans will come and knock on the door and get them. So it's very brave men and women who decide to start offer resistance. As soon as they do, then Special Operations wants to fly in its own operators, drop radio equipment, and get a network. It's not going to be really ready for resistance until it is assured that the Allied armies are coming in. It is interesting, on the morning after June the 6th, 1944, how the resistance rises up in a whole number of places in France believing that the liberation of France is coming, and they want to be able to declare themselves victors in this fight. When I was in junior high school in 1980, my mother bought me a 25-volume set of Encyclopedia Britannica at a garage sale. It was a bit dated. It was published in 1943. I read the entry on World War II, and the war was then raging. The editors of the encyclopedia were cautiously optimistic. At the time, it was not obvious that the Allies were going to win, and it certainly was not inevitable. What were the Allied leadership thinking at the time? First of all, it seems as if Roosevelt had such profound faith that at least the United States was going to win. But Churchill wasn't even sure if you were going to win the Battle of the Atlantic. He wasn't even sure if you were going to get control of the air over France in 1942. So there was a long way to go. Hence, we come back to Churchill and Alan Brooks' remark that taking over North Africa might be the end of a beginning, but it isn't the beginning of the end. And what's more, the war could go in another direction. Who knows? Readers of my this recent book, Victory at Sea, will notice that I place an awful amount of emphasis on the winning of the war in 1943. 1943 is not surprisingly... Larry, the year in which the huge American investment in production of aircraft and in surface ships, that huge American investment reaches fruition by the middle of 1943. That's when the U.S. is producing 
one aircraft carrier a month. Unbelievable. That's when the U.S. is producing 84,000 aircraft. Again, inconceivable today. And many observers, including those acute editors of Encyclopedia Britannica, (laughs) don't quite know they're supposed to be objective and authoritative. And they haven't been told of the next Allied plan, (laughs) which is to move on Sicily in July 1943 to keep rolling against the Axis powers. When they look at the Pacific, all they see is, yes, you've had this nice aircraft carrier battle at Midway in June 1942, and you haven't made much more in terms of advances by the end of 1942 or going into 1943 and the Japanese still have more aircraft carriers in the Pacific War until June 1943. So it's not surprising those editors want to write cautiously. You've described the vision of Roosevelt and Churchill, but let's look through the eyes of an American general, and specifically George Patton. In his biographical film, During Operation Torch, he looks through his field glasses and screams out, Rommel, you magnificent bastard, I read your book. Patton leads his ground forces against Rommel in North Africa and then the invasion of Sicily. What happened? Well, we know for sure, not just from that movie and George C. Scott's performance, that the most colorful of the American generals in the European theater was certainly George Patton. The chain of command, Patton is under Eisenhower as the supreme allied commander of the Anglo-American forces in North Africa. And of course, Eisenhower is under the control of the American and the British chiefs of staff. There's a line of command here. And Patton is just one of the American generals, including fellow rival general Bradley. But nonetheless, Patton is the most dynamic, which is why we have featured so much upon him, because we like dynamic guys. We don't like slow, thoughtful guys. (laughs) By the way, the North African torch operation is the first in which this untried General Eisenhower, whose martial supports, is given command. But since it works out so well, because Churchill is pushing for further adventures in the Mediterranean theater, saying we have all of these troops, why don't we just move on the next step from North Africa, just a few hundred miles to Sicily. Again, Marshall is a bit alarmed at this distraction away from a French landing, But the persuasiveness of Churchill, you've got all of these landing craft and now battle-trained armies in North Africa, and the Italian regime is so wobbly, why not go ahead and have another larger amphibious operation against the poorly held island of Sicily? And this was allowed Patton to show himself once again. He can land, his troops can roam very quickly over the western part of Sicily, while the slower-moving British forces under Montgomery can advance on the eastern shores of Sicily. And Patton can show what a decisive Rommel-like figure he is. So it's not surprising that he wants to shout out to Rommel, I know you, I read your book, I'm coming after you. It's self-glorification, which is why he drove the other generals nuts. So knocking Italy out of the war is the Allies' next objective. And Hitler was obviously very concerned that Italy will sue for peace. After Italy surrenders, how do the Nazis respond? While 
the Allies have the political success of getting a neutralist group of Italian generals to push Mussolini out of a war and to end the fascist control of Italy. But there is a very successful and impressive German general, Alfred Kesselring, who not only is willing to try much more serious counterattacks upon the Allied invading forces, but is able to persuade Hitler that, look, if you give us sufficient forces, if you rush them into Italy, because of the geographic nature of the Italian countryside and that great mountain spine running all the way down the center of Italy, you can slow them down. And what's more, we can suck in dozens and dozens of allied divisions to fight in the Italian mountains and not get very far. And after a while, we'll drop back another 50 miles and we've already constructed a next line of defenses. And we can do that for ages and ages while you win the war on the Eastern Front. So the military campaign in Italy is a long-lasting slog, and it's only in May 1945, just as the Third Reich is coming to an end, that the Allied forces get to northern Italy itself. How would you evaluate Italy's performance during the war? Churchill supposedly made a remark that it was only fair as Italy had fought with the Allies in the First World War. Did Italy materially help the Axis cause? Italy, with its geographical strengths, some f- strengths in a modern fleet and air force, weaknesses in that the Italian army is not very effective at all, and the Italian economy is terribly weak in terms of modern industrial production. It doesn't have any coal, which is tough in the age of the Industrial Revolution, right? So it needs railway coal supplies all the time. Italy is a country which both the Germans and the British, even before the war, considered, is it better for Italy to be on our side? We have to supply the Italian economy and therefore divert from our resources. Or do we actually want Italy to be on the other side because it will suck the other side's resources? There's a lot of jokes that the weakness and ineffectiveness of Italy as a fighting partner in the Second World War. It has to be said that from the viewpoint of the British Empire and the Mediterranean and Egypt and North Africa, Italy coming into the war was serious business. You had to pull your main fleet out of Malta. It was too unprotected from Italian air attack. You had an Italian army attempting to invade Egypt Almost immediately after the fall of France, you're taking British divisions to North Africa because you've got this double disaster. France falls and Italy comes in. This is serious business. Italy may not have any aircraft carriers, but Italy and Sicily have geopolitical control of the central Mediterranean and a lot of air bases and a big fleet. So knocking Italy out of the war is a serious, positive step forward. There's no doubt about that. This truly was a world war. What role did the British colonial empire play in World War II? India, which was regarded as the crown jewel of the British empire, was a great drain on British resources once Japan came into the war because you had to try to protect the frontiers of India and the Japanese army had moved all the way to the outskirts of India. 
there was a very large Indian army which had been recruited and trained according to British regimental tactics in the interwar years. They had British officer corps, so it wasn't entirely an Indian division which fought under Montgomery at the Battle of Alamein, but the 5th Indian Division and other ones like that fought significantly in North Africa from the Battle of Alamein on, including fighting in the Italian peninsula itself. On the whole, the strategic plus for the British was that they could call upon not just Canadian, Australian, New Zealand divisions to help in the fight against the Axis, they could call upon these colonial armies that they had created in the interwar years. And some of them fought very, very well indeed. A number of Indian divisions have soldiers in them who won the Victoria Cross, the highest award for gallantry. And among those Indian divisions was the famous Gurkha Brigades, which were probably the single best fighting troops of the entire Second World War. You mentioned that the British war aims included protecting Malta and Alexandria in Egypt. But the ultimate true objective was maintaining Britain's trade routes with India. When you look at the British Empire as a whole and its strategic aims, you see that the British had heavily invested in two places. Going all the way back to the Victorian times and coming forward to 1940, the beginning of the war, the two places were the British Empire of India and the British position in the Middle East. In the Levant, in Egypt, in Palestine, in Iraq, Sudan. And there was a huge British military establishment in Egypt to sustain that presence before the Italians closed the Mediterranean. Most British merchant ships going to India are going through the Mediterranean, not around the Cape at the bottom of South Africa. Malta and the Suez Canal and all of British-held Middle East is important. And why is it important? Well, it's partly nostalgia. This is where the British Empire under Disraeli planted its feet in the Victorian times. It's partly because of trade. The British have a massive trade surplus with their empire, even as they have a trade deficit in their trading relations with the more advanced nations and economies of the world. Was maintaining access to oil the primary British concern in the Middle East? Oil had become significant strategically, but you needed to have control of the oil fields themselves. It was all right for the Americans because the Americans are in such surplus of oil fields. British oil supplies came either from the Caribbean and Venezuela or from the Persian Gulf. From 1914 onwards, the British were in the Persian Gulf getting control of those Arab Emirates because that was where the oil was. You had to keep a firm hold of the oil supplies of the Middle East for your British Empire strategic aims. Explain the role of the Allied Air Force in helping win the war. By June 1940, with the fall of France, German generals having got to the shores of the English Channel, and they're looking with their binoculars across the English Channel at the White Cliffs of Dover, there were two big factors against any German invasion of the United Kingdom. 
Operation Sea Lion. This wasn't going to work because the Royal Navy was substantially bigger than the battered German surface fleet, which had lost so many of its ships in its successful takeover of Norway. The second thing is the Germans had to get control of the air over the English Channel and southern England. For any successful invasion, you had no chance of invading if the enemy was in control of air. For the first time, the Luftwaffe finds itself against an air force which is numerically almost as strong as itself and is getting a supply of new Hurricane and Spitfire squadrons faster than the German Luftwaffe is getting Messerschmitt squadrons. It has the advantages of being on the home side. It has the superior advantage, which the Germans don't have, of this new system of detection of oncoming aircraft using the radar. The British pilots can rest on the ground until only about 45 minutes before they go into the air to fight against the Germans. And the German aircraft, only a limited amount of fuel left by the time they get over London itself. So you're taking on a country which has great strength in depth. It would take a far, far bigger Luftwaffe than was around in 1940 to be able to dominate Britain over the air. What was the Allied bombing strategy against the Germans? So the British and later on the Americans invest hugely in a very, very large long-range strategic bombing air force. The U.S. 8th Army Air Force and in the Mediterranean, the 15th Air Force and the British Bomber Command. This is not the fighter command which wins the defensive battle over the fields of southern England in 1940. It's not the long-range coastal command which goes out to help the convoys. This is something different. Independent air forces. They have an enormous challenge in trying to take the bombing war to the Third Reich. By 1942-1943, Germany was creating an enormous anti-air force army of like a million and a half men and tens of thousands of advanced high-level anti-aircraft guns to protect the Third Reich's industry from strategic bombing of the British and the American bombers. And the casualty rate in the aerial campaign against Germany turned out to be huge. In August and October 1943, a aerial daylight bombing, which the Americans go for, over Germany against the strategic ball bearings plant of a city called Schweinfurt in West Germany, lead to, on that morning, 60 B-17 aircraft being shot out of the sky. That is 60 times 11 train crewmen. The casualty rates of the strategic bombing air forces and on the British side, the nighttime campaigns against industrial Germany were incredibly high. Was the Air Force bombardment of German industrial plants effective? Both the British and the American strategic bombing services had the strategic argument that they alone, flying for a thousand miles into enemy-held territory, you could unleash your bombs onto the railway lines, power stations, the 
oil refinery supplies, the shipyard works, or the board bearing works, and deal the enemy a blow on the home industrial front. This would bring your enemy's economy grinding to a halt. This was the Air Force strategic bombing philosophy. You didn't need a large army to invade. You're not going to have a war on the Western Front like in 1918. And you hardly needed much in the way of a navy either. The Air Force mavens here were very, very arrogant people. The Air Forces would do it. And what's more, we could do it with pinpoint strategic bombing so that we wouldn't raise the issues already raised in international law and human rights debates and in Geneva Conventions. We wouldn't be able to get involved in in doing something which was morally offensive. British Bomber Command enters the Second World War thinking that it can do pinpoint strategic bombing, and it realizes in daytime when it flies over Germany in 1939, 1940, It gets shot down, and so it moves to nighttime bombing, which means you need more advanced technical steering and navigational systems to do it. So if your strategic bombers are up there 30,000 feet and you don't have the technical equipment to figure out where your precise target is, you steadily begin moving to area bombing or carpet bombing And that means you're going to be hitting whole cities with their vast civilian populations, and you're not so likely to knock out by pinpoint bombing the other side's industrial capacity. So you lose on the moral ground and the effectiveness ground. Albert Speer led Germany's industrial production. How did Speer respond to the Allied air attacks? When the Luftwaffe begins its attacks upon English cities and ports and railway lines and productive facilities after the summer of 1940, the British not only increased defensive capacities with anti-aircraft guns and detection systems, they move a whole lot of new industries further north and northeast where it cannot be reached by German bombers. In the same way, Speer can do all of those defensive steps relocate a considerable amount of German industry further to the east because the Russians don't have a strategic bombing air force, and then make the argument to Hitler that you want ever more men and resources for the anti-aircraft systems of the Third Reich. Let's wrap up our third installment together of what happens next with an explanation of why 1943 was the most important year of the war. So we're looking at the Allied campaign in the European and Mediterranean theaters, quite separate from what is going on in parallel war against Japan. And the first significant steps have been taken at what Churchill and what Alan Brooke call the beginning of the end. You have defended the British Isles and there's no chance of a big German invasion there. You have control of the air over British airspace, the English Channel, and Northwest Europe. Your Allied convoys are coming across the Atlantic. They're encountering intensive attacks of U-boats, but you're still battling on. And then in North Africa, a shining light, you've got the first big step forward. 
Roosevelt is reinforced politically by this. The Americans are taking the war against the Germans. Churchill and the British planners are relieved that you're going to knock not only Vichy France out of the war, but Italy itself. By the summer of 1943, as we try to do this wrap-up, after the decisive convoy battles in the North Atlantic of May and June 1943, you have defeated the U-boats. You're beginning to increase the supply of American army and armed forces into Great Britain. You're beginning the large, long-range strategic bombing campaign of both American and British strategic bombers. You're not winning that fight over Germany, but you're straining the enemy. And the Mediterranean, you're so successful that after the Allied invasion of Sicily in July 1943, the regime of Mussolini's fascist Italy will fall and the Italian surface fleet will surrender to the Allies. If you like it, one down and two much larger Axis powers to defeat. Thanks, Paul, for joining us today. That ends this session. If you missed last week's show, check it out. Our first speaker was Michelle Margulies, who is a professor of political science at Penn. Michelle has a new book entitled From Politics to the Pews, How Partnership and the Political Environment Shape Religious Identity. Michelle argues that partisanship is the key to your personal identity and that this decision impacts your religiosity, your devotion. That's right. If you become a Republican, you are more active in church. And if you're a Democrat, you are more secular. Our second speaker was Julian Zelizer, his professor at Princeton. He has a book entitled Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Julian explains how Newt Gingrich's political innovation with respect to C-SPAN, the contract with America, and using ethics committees resulted in the Republicans taking over the House in 1994 and why that has continuing relevance today. I'd also like to make a plug for next week's show. Our speaker will be Moises Naim, who has a new book entitled Revenge of Power, and he will discuss how populism, polarization, and post-truth undermine democracy here and abroad. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would love to hear your reaction to today's program, so please email me at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com with ideas and comments. Please join us each week on What Happens Next. Please subscribe to our weekly email list on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com to hear about our upcoming podcasts. I would like to thank you, our audience, for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.